Hello, everybody. <laughs> what? Stop laughing. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to Herpetological Highlights, episode 42. Uh, after a little bit of a hiatus, we're back. Uh, I'm Tom Major, and co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall. And this bye week, we're going to be talking about Christmas, <laughs> because we're late. Because <laughs> um... <laughs> we're so on time, we're up to date, we're keeping these things topical... <laughs> Yeah. There were no delays or technical difficulties or anything. No. This is this is exactly as designed, so as intended. You might be wondering why we're doing a Christmas episode in the second week of January. And to, to those people I say, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> Stop asking questions. Yeah, mind your own damn business. Christmas <laughs> is whenever you want it to be. It's in your heart. So It is in your heart. Really, <laughs> the friends we made along the way are the true Christmas. Oh, oh. Uh, yeah, and contrary to popular belief, you can watch Home Alone at any time of the year. So that's what we're doing. Alternatively, as I do, never. Mate, Macaulay's a legend, come on. you got to admit, at least the first film is pretty good. Yeah, but I don't need to see it again <laughs> multiple times during the year. <laughs> no, I watched... Uh, what was it? We didn't watch Love Actually this year. We watched... Um, Notting Hill, very entertaining, very funny. Ah, uh, if you see, we watched various various Krampus movies. What the hell even is that? Is that a cat? Krampus, Krampus, the Christmas Devil. Oh, <laughs> he's like the anti Santa Claus. <laughs> oh right, what are those animated or are those like live action films? Oh no, they're they're live action and low budget. <laughs> it sounds terrible. Really low budget. <laughs> I don't want to watch that. Um, have you seen Notting Hill? Nope. Never. It's really good. It's the same guy. Yep. Is it? Um, I can't remember the name of the director, but yeah, it's like the same. I think it's the same guy that did Love Actually. I wonder if our American listeners have seen Notting Hill or Love Actually, whether those have crossed the pond. I think Hugh Grant's quite famous internationally, isn't he? Yes. Yes. He's like a comedy. He's like a sort of caricature of an English person. Yes, he's done great damage. <laughs> we do, yeah. We actually despise him. No, I actually think he's really funny. Um, cool. So, Fun fact, he's actually Australian. <laughs> that's not a fun fact. That's a goddamn lie. <laughs> yeah. But... If he was Australian, that'd be mental. Um, fun fact, Russell Crowe's actually from Bath. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so shall we... What are we talking about this? Not even by week this month. We're... Uh... Things from Christmas Island. Yeah, so we... Um... We're supposed to be doing a Christmas special, and so we thought, what's more Christmassy than Christmas Island? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Nothing. So, yeah, we're going to talk about the reptiles of Christmas Island, unsurprisingly, which it's not even exclusively about reptiles of Christmas Island, is it? I think the first paper's really... To be honest, we should probably level with everyone. It's not Christmas anymore, and now we're going to do the Christmas episode. So, Schley and Schley's first paper... Yes. That's another thing. It's not even like we've read it ages ago and it's stuff that we're familiar with. This is an episode on evolution, principally, which is crazy complicated, but we'll see. Hopefully it will go well. Um, The first paper is by Aubrecht in 2015, single author, which is quite rare these days. Uh, Island colonization and the evolutionary rates of body size in insular neonate snakes. And that's published in Hereditary, um, which is actually a journal from Nature by the Genetics Society. So, Hmm. yeah. Not, I'd actually not come across it before, I don't think. But Same. Yeah, but it's apparently, it's, well, it's a, it's a nature journal. It's not one of the nature journals, but <clears throat> pretty damn respectable publication by all accounts. Um, yeah, so sort of 
as the title alludes, the basic premise of this is that different snakes on different islands might be different sizes. Um, that's not news. Uh, but it's a bit of a mystery why. You know, island gigantism, island dwarfism are kind of big ideas or like, you know, not necessarily big ideas, but they're well-known ideas because of things like... Yeah, and they're, they're meant to be quite overarching, aren't they? They're, they're These are people driving towards creating... Uh, not not laws, but rules mm-hmm. that can help predict and explain sort of big patterns in uh, in biology, right? Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, because the the mechanisms behind what makes things really small or really big on islands aren't really very well understood, um, especially over the short term. And sort of the reasons why these changes occur are a bit mysterious. Uh, and to sort of preface this idea, changes in morphology, so the size and shape of an animal, a species of animal. Not an individual animal. Individual animals don't generally shrink. There are a few exceptions, but generally they sort of... Well, unless you put them in a really hot wash. <laughs> yeah, or I was thinking of the, um, you know, the marine iguanas that digest their own bones and they shrink up and... Oh, they, like, yeah, up. that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, did, yeah. Did you ever have one of those... Um, my, the one I had was a dinosaur, it was like a stegosaurus. And um, you put it in a bowl of water and it starts off like a small little toy dinosaur. And then you put it in the bowl of water and after... I don't know, the 24 hours, it it sort of t- it draws up all the water and it expands to a gargantuan size and all its features are like all sort of bloated and disgusting. Did you ever have one of those? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking yeah. about. I know what you're talking That's about. That's another example of, I don't know what, but um, yeah, basically changes in morphology can happen very rapidly in terms of evolution. Um, they In this paper, they use an example from Herald et al. 2008, where some someone i think it was the scientists themselves actually introduced some italian wall lizards onto an island off croatia and in a very Mm. short time after 36 years which is 30 generations of uh, wall lizard they'd switched from being uh mostly carnivorous or like insectivorous to being mostly herbivorous um and alongside that change in diet their heads had got bigger both wider and longer their bite force had got a lot stronger to chew up the plant material and it also, which is mental, evolved this valve inside their um, <clears throat> intestines, which slows down the passage of plant-based food. So they like made fundamental changes to their digestive tracts in the short, short space of 36 years. And um, that's actually a really rare thing to evolve, apparently. I can't remember exactly what the paper said, because it was weeks ago. But uh, yeah, it's very unusual for a lizard to have this feature of their anatomy. And they'd evolved it just by being put on an island where they had to change their, their diet and it only took 30 generations. Yeah, that's something that you sort of forget about with evolution is it's not it's not necessarily this big, long, overarching thing. It can be quite punctual and rapid given <laughs> the right situation. Evolution, right, right on time. Punctual. <laughs> punctual. Sorry, did someone order I... a slice of evolution? Here I am. <clears throat> Here I am. Now you can digest plants. <laughs> Off you go. Cheers, evolution. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Yeah, um, but this paper is not about lizards. <clears throat> it's about snakes, which are even better than lizards. I don't want to hear anything more about it. Uh, yeah, this Notechis scutatus, which is the tiger snake. Um, it's a big, we've talked about them on the podcast a few times. They're really big, beefy, elapid snakes. Um, although saying that, they they vary in size. Uh, but we discussed the island population of them from Karnak Island off Western Australia which were the tiger snakes that had mm. their eyes pecked out by the seabirds. 
Oh, yes, and they were stealing all the eggs, weren't they? Yeah, they just couldn't yep. get enough of those sweet, sweet chicks and eggs, and so they were being... The vengeful birds were pecking their eyes out, but they didn't care. They just bowled around on the cliffs with no eyes, and it sort of seemed to have very little effect on their survival, if not none. If, any, if anything, it made them stronger and more determined. <laughs> the resolve from not having eyes. Oh. Just got an entire race of daredevil tiger snakes, as in the superhero daredevil, <laughs> just like sensing their environment, just feeling around for that sweet, sweet fluff. Of the baby chicks. Um, yeah, they're found on lots of islands around Australia, these tiger snakes. Uh, sea level rose. Basically, it's kind of like a sky island situation that we've talked about with chameleons in East Africa. Except for this time, instead of inhospitable habitat, it's ocean. Which is also inhospitable habitat if you're not a marine animal. So, they were much more widespread around and about. But then sea level rose and it meant that all these tiger snakes off um, Australia were marooned and um yeah depending on the island or mainland population you look at uh the tiger snakes can vary very wildly in their adult size um but despite that they're all really closely related and that speaks to the fact that they were interconnected in relatively recent history yeah so what are we talking about time frame how how long ago were these islands created you know, roughly it didn't do we know men- did it mention it and i have maybe i've because they have rates so they must have estimating isolation times yeah okay uh tiger snakes were introduced from mainland in the 1920s Mm-mm. and some islands were introduced from mainland tasmania around 40 years ago yeah, but that's the introduced ones. There's ones which are natively there. Oh, here we go. Let's uh, look at table one. Isolation time. Mainland, mainland, mainland. 9,100, 9,100, 7,700, 6,000, 6,000, 90, and 40. So, some are more recent than others. Some were, uh, yeah, but 40 years ago, whereas others were, well, they were all less than 10,000 years ago. Although, what does mainland mean? <clears throat> oh, they're on the mainland, so they're not isolated. Yeah, that's that's your sort of control as such. Yeah. yeah. They connect, yeah, yeah. Quite a neat little experiment. Um, What's well, one of those nice... What do you call these? Um, I've forgotten the name. Wow, what a, what a useful comment. I love podcasting. Um, <laughs> na- <laughs> what, no, what do you call it? Natural experiments where you've got a, like a... You can't manipulate these things because you can't manipulate something t- 10,000 years into making and then come back later to see what's happened. So you find places where it's happened by chance and work from there. There's a word for that. There's a word for I'd that. I'd love to know that word. Maybe it'll come to you later on. <clears throat> if not. Ob- so- some some ob- observational something. Cool. Well, listeners, <laughs> <laughs> listeners, if you know, tell us. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so what would we know about tiger snakes? Let's talk about their ecology first. Um, they live in swamps. Yeah, they're filthy swamp dwellers. That was the first thing that sprung to my mind. I was like, oh. Semi-aquatic. They like to eat frogs and they also eat rodents. They'll also eat lizards and birds. And on island population, in our, sorry, on islands, if there's only one particular food source available, they'll just eat it. They're not fussy, basically. Um, they'll eat whatever's around. Adaptable. Yeah. If... Please. If they're in an environment which has a multitude of food sources, it seems as though they'll eat a multitude of food sources. And if there's just one, they'll eat that one, um, which is a good strategy. I'm exactly the same way. 
and it sets them up rather nicely to look at how prey affects their morphology and things because if they're eating all different varieties you've got different things to test if they only ate one type of prey it'd be pretty difficult to test the impact of prey yeah <laughs> on uh, morphology the title of the paper so, wouldn't yeah. be evolutionary rates of body size and insulin neonate snakes it would be a bunch of snakes of the same size probably and they like this type of food yeah <laughs> tiger snakes love rats um yeah, so generally speaking, let's talk about size of these snakes. So mainland tiger snakes are always less than one meter snout to vent length, uh, but some island populations can be up to an over 1.5 meters SVL. They're like proper island brutes. And um, if they come onto the mainland on boats, there's going to be a big bust up. <laughs> this giant size, so this is a case of island, I don't know whether you could call it gigantism, but I mean, they're, they're 50% bigger again, so it's quite a big quite a bit that's pretty pretty gigantic if that happened to a like german shepherd you'd be like that's a big dog yeah it would be freakish imagine if it happened to a human a nine foot human it'd be terrifying oh <laughs> put that thing in a cage <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so the reason that they're bigger is because they're living on islands with delicious birds and lizards it seems um but so there's evidence to suggest that their body size adapts to the prey in adults but this paper wanted to see if the same were true of juveniles because um at the minute not much attention prior to this had been paid to the size of juveniles in relation to their prey availability and obviously just because the adults have got access to a big prey source and therefore can get bigger it doesn't necessarily translate that the juveniles will be born necessarily bigger because it could be the case that the juveniles need to exploit a resource which is smaller so they could end up being smaller basically the the idea behind this is that juveniles might have their entire own kind of evolutionary race going on um obviously it'll be alongside the adults because they themselves become adult at some point but it might be that the uh the neonate snakes are under similar pressures you'd ex you would assume that big snakes would have big babies right you'd think so but it might not be the case Mm. When well, isn't there the question of separating out genetic aspects with plasticity aspects? So if you're looking at juvenile snakes, there's less of an opportunity for plasticity to be playing a role and you're more likely to see the genetic uh, signal or influences, right? Yeah, yeah. They haven't had a time to be pushed towards uh, what is a, a, a better phenotype Mm. babies would be more honest. by plasticity yeah babies would be a more honest indicator of the genotype yeah um i think so and so i think that's that's part of it yeah and so alongside that uh one of the big ideas or the big idea i guess you could say is that um rates of evolution in body size would be higher in recently isolated snake populations than in populations where they've been isolated for a long time because you'd think that if, if a snake's only been on an island for 40 years it probably won't have reached the like optimal body size that it can because there's not been enough time although 40 years as we've talked about is quite a long time potentially in an evolutionary sense um the likelihood is that they won't have kind of reached the optimal for that island and they'll still be kind of working their way towards something um mm. and so they're looking to see whether the snakes are still changing and so to conduct the study they spent 10 years capturing pregnant snakes and then letting them have their young in captivity um, they got 1,066 neonates from 10 different locations 
including both island and mainland populations. And one of them was on Christmas Island, hence the theme of the podcast, which is horrendously delayed. <laughs> and um, yeah, in each of those places, obviously, it's not enough to just see the sizes. They need a, a sort of measure of what the prey is looking like. So they looked at the prey availability in the places where the snakes were found. What animals would the neonate snakes actually encounter? And what animals, what sizes would the animals that they encountered be? Um and as we mm. talked about earlier on, they also worked out how long populations have been isolated. And then they worked out, based on the prey that was available, what the perfect body size of the snakes should be, theoretically. Yes. And, so you, um, yeah. I think that, yeah, that's important to emphasize that you have the what the snakes are now and what the best setup, the optimal phenotype to exploit the prey available on that island is. Yeah. And then they were looking... And that comparison. Yeah, yeah, and they were looking to see if ones which were more recently isolated, i.e. have had less time to kind of evolve to reach that perfect size, whether they are further away from reaching that perfect size, which is very neat and tidy. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Mm. Pretty cool. So, um, yeah. Basically, what they found out, um, in the early stages of colonisation, head growth rate may provide an additional advantage to young snakes so if you're born with a small head um making your head get big really fast after you're born might be beneficial uh and when you think about it you see a lot of baby snakes that have like freakishly massive heads i think it's actually one of the reasons that baby snakes are so cute because their heads are kind of out of proportion of their bodies compared to an adult and um, big heads big eyes yeah exactly yeah well big eyes yeah humans are suckers for big eyes aren't they and yeah. um it, it makes sense in a new environment with larger prey the selective pressure to grow a gigantic head would be really big so you'd expect that they'd get big heads quickly um their results for snake size versus prey were also conclusive so if the juvenile snakes are encountering heavier prey the snakes tend to be longer at birth and heavier at birth which makes sense i mean if the prey's bigger and heavier you're gonna have to be bigger and heavier to take it off heavier yeah yeah um and the other main finding was that rates of evolution in body mass in island snakes were correlated with isolation time so um longer the longer they'd been isolated the less evolution that was going on over time so the less the bodies were changing if you see that. yeah less of a less of a selective pressure because they'd have time to get closer to this optimal phenotype so they were better in tune with their environment so you didn't need to it wasn't these rates weren't being pushed as high as they could be if you're fresh in you're like quick i need to change because i can't exploit this prey you're going to have a faster rate because the smaller snakes that maybe can't exploit the right prey size will be severely uh disadvantaged yeah so it's going to push that rate up and the other thing that was interesting was that um the level of plasticity for head growth was less plastic in snakes that had been longer isolated. So um, in the course of evolving towards the so-called perfect body structure for their island, they actually lose the genetic capacity to um, be plastic. And that means if the situation for them changes, the longer they've been isolated, the more the genes have proliferated for a specific uh, growth rate body size, the less likely they are to be able to make that switch back uh, quickly, which is really interesting. Well, that is fascinating. I mean, number one, it suggests that plasticity has some sort of cost. Otherwise, why is it being selected against, right? It would it would just hang around, I would have thought. But secondly, that starts pushing interesting questions into your mind about uh, introduced species on islands. 
and how species that have been there longer and isolated for longer may be more vulnerable because they have they're lacking this uh, get up and go adaptability that may have been preserved in other places. Yes, it does. <clears throat> in a changing world, they could actually be leaving themselves vulnerable to um, to changes occurring and then being left out in the cold. So yeah. if you've evolved specifically to target a particular prey and that prey goes extinct or sea levels rise and the coastal habitat on which that prey depends disappears and you no longer have the adaptability to evolve a different body structure or at least be plastic then you could be high and dry yeah so yeah it does it provides empirical support for kind of this role of plasticity in directing species evolution which is cool it's absolutely fantastic i mean you've got wonderful sample size wonderful setup it's pretty damn clear what's going on right yeah because you've got these rates that are pretty excellent proxy for selective pressure you'd presume right yeah um yeah i don't think i have anything to add top marks top billing (laughs) yeah um yeah i thought it was great uh cool well um yeah so that's tiger snakes on islands and their kind of evolution um Oh, and I suppose, yep, yeah, sorry, no, I have thought of something else, just as soon as you started wrapping it up, of course I did. Go on then, you little devil. <laughs> um, that sort of, like, rates and pushing towards an optimum, this is a very basis for speciation and stuff like that. Like, as you get these species becoming more specialised and isolated, and, and more, well, I suppose less uh, flexible back to what they were before, there's less chance of them recolonizing places and, and breeding with other individuals of other islands and just slowly pushing towards uh, little little endemic species, or at least yeah, yeah, this very is, distinct morphs. Yeah, this is absolutely the very first sort of steps towards that. Because um, that, I mean, yeah, definitely not the case for these particular snakes, but given enough time, like that's absolutely what would happen, yeah. Exactly. I mean... Just give it time. Give them time. 9,000 years, probably not enough, but... (laughs) Hi, did someone order some evolution? (laughs) (laughs) Cool, yeah, so... um, More insular biogeographic stuff coming up. Hmm. We ready for our second paper, then? Yeah. All right, we've got a paper by Oliver Blom, Cogger, Fisher, Richmond, and Wynarski, published in Biological Letters in 2018. Insular, bio... Insular biogeographic origins and high phylogenetic distinctiveness for a recently depleted lizard fauna from Christmas Island, Australia. Whew. Pow. Lots of nouns in that sentence. Yes, no doubt. Um, this one's open access, which is cool. Yes, and it is a damn cool paper too. Mm. Did you know... We're moving from snakes to lizards. Yeah, we should mention that we're on the Christmas island that's off Australia as well, because there is another one. Um, oh. There's like multiple Christmas islands, because com- I had this conversation over Christmas. I was like, I was talking to someone about... I was talking to my mate Andy about... 
what the next episode of the podcast was on and i was like oh christmas island and he was like oh yeah christmas island and i was like yeah the one off australia he's like he's australian he's like there's no christmas island off australia and i was like what or maybe i can't remember exactly how it went but basically it caused a little bit of confusion um because there is apparently multiple of them um but we're talking about Hmm. the one that's like um because there's one that's like off tasmania yes we're talking about the one off indonesia Well, we are now actually. <laughs> I think we might actually have... have. we talked about two different Christmas islands? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a, what a marvelous marvelous adventure. So I think that first one is actually. Um, where is it? Where's the paper? Let's have a look here. No, that's a different one. That's a spoiler alert for the species of the bye week. Okay, so yeah, because this one um, there's no map, which because it says here. Yeah, but like Christmas Island. Mainland Tasmania. They're talking about mainland Tasmania. Yeah, and there's one just off the coast of Tasmania, right? So oh. so we're actually on two different Christmas Islands. But I'm glad we realised before it went out. <laughs> yeah, well, forget that Christmas Island. We're over in Indonesia now. We're looking <laughs> at the Wallacea line. The Wallace line. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. So everybody, everybody knows about the Wallace line, right? Uh, it's a line that splits uh, Indonesia and like Southeast Asia with Australia and other parts of Indonesia and all that southern stuff. And there's meant to be a sort of distinct, two distinct arrays of fauna either side of the line. Why exactly that exists? Hmm. Well, that's a little bit of what this paper's getting into. Because Christmas Island, this Christmas Island, is actually very close to Southeast Asian landmass but the species there are more related to stuff Wallacea yeah so that's what they that's basically what they did they went to well I don't think they even went to Christmas Island they had a whole bunch of museum specimens I believe because we are looking at two skinks and two geckos um one is extinct Another is extinct in the wild, another is an endangered, and the fourth is also extinct in the wild. Uh, what are they? They are Cryptobelpharus. Crypto. Bel- yeah, Cryptobelpharus. I think it's pronounced Cryptobelpharus. Oh, yeah. Cryptobelpharus. Egerinine. Egerinine. <laughs> Mate, I'm not going to read all these. Why are there so many vowels in that word? It's just that is there's that's so many egregious. <laughs> Basically, two geckos, two skinks that are or were super endemic to the Christmas Islands. Yeah. So a little bit of why and how they are related to the rest of the situation and what's going on in relation to the Wallace. Wait, wait, wait. there's five reptiles native there, right? Yes, but they couldn't do it on the other one, yeah, that's right, the yeah. endemic blind snake, because they didn't have any or enough genetic data to do it. Um, that snake might be gone. Yes, it might be. It feels like Christmas Island's in a real bad way. They're in a real pickle over there. Yeah. So what did they actually do? They checked how these species related to other closely related species across the sort of Southeast Asian uh, Wallacea Archipelago series of islands. 
and that gave them an idea of how long they'd been on the island and also where their ancestors would have come from. So whether they were actually Southeast Asian or, or Wallacean. And as it turns out, they're relatively closely related to the stuff from the Australasian side of the Wallace line. But this seems a little bit odd because it's actually much harder, or it would seem to be much harder to come from there than it would from the Southeast Asian area, which is only 350 kilometers away. Maybe if Whereas, you were ignorant of the currents. <laughs> oh, well, see, there we, maybe, maybe. But even that seems somewhat strange, and there's got to be something more at play, because, okay, it's a thousand kilometers to go from the Australasian side, and there are cool examples. There's a, there's a Rocha et al. 2006 paper that shows that you have pretty good, or you have some decent connections between Indonesia and Australia and lizard species in Madagascar and then on to Africa. And they were suggesting, because of the sort of divergence times between those species in Africa and Madagascar and Indonesia, that it wasn't caused by any uh, Mesozoic vicariants where, they, where the uh, continents split apart and you just had the same species in two different places diverging. And there wasn't enough difference genetically to be a human introduction so basically it was point they were pointing the finger at it must have been long distance oceanic dispersal that's the only thing that works in the time frame that they were uh, producing from their genetic analysis wait so these are animals coming from australia to and indonesia to madagascar <clears throat> all the way across the indian ocean that's what it was being suggested that's yeah bonkers basically oceanic dispersal can be pretty intense but that direction that's what i was gathering yeah that direction is it then yeah i mean because i mean it's it's feasible because um i mean you've got those boas in sort of the south pacific into the you know sort of by um fiji and all that stuff which uh presumably from a radiation which must have come from well, actually, they're not really, are they? They're in the... What ocean is that? They're in the sort of... Um, what is it? It's so, well, I mean, it's the Solomon Sea. It's like the Solomon Islands and then like Fiji. Yeah, South, Fiji, South Pacific. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Fiji's like a Pacific island, isn't it? Um, yeah. And they must have come from the Americas at some point. And I mean, that's kind of a similar distance. In fact, it might even be slightly longer because it's sort of... I think it's almost definitely longer. Yeah, it, I think it is longer. It's half. It's easily half the globe. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, so, I mean, that kind of radiation, it's mental to think of animals, especially little lizards, making that journey and surviving. Like, what did the, what did the raft that they were on look like? How did they construct it? <laughs> <laughs> Slash, were they picked up by travelling wandering albatrosses or something? Well, yeah. Who knows? But just, there is decent evidence that these large-scale things are occurring. I mean, it may not be a case of many individuals getting out there, but uh, something's something's happened. Something's got them across. Yeah. And this is what's interesting with this, this paper's example, is all these lizards tend to be more closely related to more distant islands than what you would expect them being more closely related to Southeast Asian areas. So, 
that sort of su- suggesting you've got a quite a wiggly Wallace line and there's more at play than just dispersal capability. Because the counterpoint to that is if it was just dispersal problems, you'd expect the Southeast Asian species to also get to the island equally likely, right? Yeah. But there's something preventing them from breaking out of the continent. So there's potentially two... Uh, Two, two, lim- two things limiting them. And really, I won't go into the, the methods of the paper because that's all genetic confusion as far as I'm concerned. I, I didn't get my head around it. But... Hmm, Nor me. The best way I should add this? <clears throat> so one thing that they're sort of suggesting might be causing this is partly connected to what you had you were discussing before with the tiger snakes is once you have island populations they can change to get certain traits that work better on those islands and those traits might have prevented colonization of the continent because you've got species on the continent that might have already filled those niches and these specialized traits are just not good enough to break into the continent basically so even though it's quite a small dispersal distance so it's kind of like when you go on holiday to a nice sunny island and you sort of chill out. And then when you get back, you've forgotten how to type. Yeah. Because you've had yeah, too just many like that. cocktails. So exactly the, islands, the, the islands degraded those traits. <laughs> that had been <laughs> Those continental required traits. Yeah. And the same goes the other way around. So a continental species looking to colonize Christmas Island from the Southeast Asian, of a Southeast Asian origin might not be as well adapted for that island because the island species are quite well um well tuned you know they're close to that optimum phenotype mm-hmm. yeah yes yeah, mm. good analogy handy that we did those papers in the same podcast so <laughs> <laughs> as if there's some sort of plan <laughs> well done hive mind but this is also sort of interesting in a slightly bigger picture because obviously these traits aren't going to be the same for every species or even type of species. And people talk about the Wallace line like it's this immutable uh, line, like it's it's something physical. But obviously there's there's still flow back and forth and there's there are species that make that leap. And what's also cool, there's a paper by Holt et al., a 2013 one, which basically show that depending on your... Uh, not family. What's above family? What's like amphibian order. bird class order? Basically, there's lines in different positions and there's different gradients for different orders and classes. It's not a set rule. It is not a set line because obviously different species and different traits and the different conditions on these islands are all going to interact slightly differently and push that line further north or south. So for... Birds, it's further north towards Borneo, or as they suggest. And for mammals, there's a more of a, a gradient. Again, a, a line of Borneo, but then a, one further to the south as well. Then amphibians, uh, they sort of split the difference. And the sort of different um, biomes are slightly different for the different classes as well. So it's not all set in stone, and it's definitely not all the same for the same species. But for these guys, these lizards that we're talking about here, it seemed pretty consistent. And it also is sort of suggesting 
that is all worked in a similar sort of way. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I think kind of one of the overall points of this is that um, because of this isolation, like irrespective of where they've come from, island species are like genetically quite unique in many ways. And yes. that leaves them really vulnerable to the, the basically the world we live in. And um, it kind of brings you back to, I mean, the, the main... Well, it's diff- you can't say the main reason. People are the reason that um, everything's gone badly for the uh, reptiles of this Christmas island. Uh, but they certainly haven't been helped by introduced species as well. And there's um, Lycodon cap- capuchinus, which is... Um, mm. I can't remember the common name. Some kind of wolf snake. Um, and they've... The cappuccino wolf snake. Cappuccino wolf snake. That's the one. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it... Yeah, I think Capuchin's got something to do with the head being white. I can't, I can't, staring at that word, I can't work out what it means. But it makes me think of a Capuchin monkey, which hasn't it got like a white collar or something? Perhaps. Yeah, who knows? It's all speculation anyway. Scholars maintain that the origin has been lost. But um, yeah, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, this in, this invasive species is just like smashing up all the geckos and loads of the lizards. Um, yeah. Do you uh, like? Is now a good time for me to talk a bit about the conservation of these species, or should we? Are we still banked going on the genetics? No, I think the genetics is pretty well well covered at this point. It, it's worth mentioning that the divergence times for these four different species on Christmas Island are different, right? Um, and the ones that are more recent, well, no, no, that's not really. I was just looking at the the Cytodactylus gecko and how there's actually it has relatives on both sides of the Wallace line. Um, so going back to what I was saying, is, you know, these lines aren't immutable laws or anything like that, but there is a clear pattern that uh, dispersal is not the thing limiting, is not the thing causing this line as such. There are more things at play, be that... Uh, uh, what's the right word? Uh, adaptation to certain conditions and how that interacts with other species in other places when when they do successfully disperse you've still got to make a make a living there and uh, that might have more to do with what species are where than the actual dispersal Mm, yeah 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 Yeah, it's all well and good sailing halfway around the world to colonize new island but if you're not equipped to survive there you were wasting your time Yes, exactly. So you mentioned earlier on there was five species of lizard on the island. Um, two are extinct. The forest skink, Emoya nativitatis, whose last known individual died in captivity. And also the coastal skink, Emoya atrocostata. That's not an endemic species, so it exists elsewhere. Um, but it's now extinct on Christmas Island. Um so these lizards started declining somewhere after 1979, up until then, and we thought everything was sweet. But um, we didn't actually realise there was a problem, actually, to be fair, until the 1990s. Uh, it took a long time to realise the lizards were endangered. I mean, it's quite a hard thing to clock onto unless you've got really good modelling going on or just sort of consistent... Um, Surveying, consistent monitoring. monitoring yeah, yeah exactly that's usually where things fall down yeah is uh you need long-term monitoring efforts and that's costly and longer than a grant uh cycle yeah and it's then on top of that uh it, well it took us a long time as people to realize they're endangered and then 
we started managing the invasive yellow crazy ant, which are just as crazy as they sound. They're mental. Um, they were thought to be the <laughs> buggest threat I've written there, which is obviously an attempt at a pun. Dickhead. Uh, <laughs> I think it's actually a genuine spelling area. I've got a little, got a little, I've got a little bullet point. The buggest threat, clearly. Tom of two weeks ago thought that was hilarious. Uh, yeah, so I shouldn't break the fourth wall like that. Uh, yeah, so they took a long time to decide they were endangered. Um, yeah, the yellow crazy ant was thought to be the biggest threat. Biggest threat. It was hoped to help the species by smashing up the yellow ant, but it was too late. And the forest skink is gone. Yes, right. So the forest skink's gone. But Lister's gecko and the blue-tailed skink uh, have been put into captivity. Um, the blue-tailed skink is called the blue-tailed skink because it has a really blue tail, um, which isn't nice. particularly surprising. But basically, in August 2009, they tried to catch as many individuals as possible of the four declining species. Um, three forest skinks were captured, as I alluded to earlier. They're now extinct, but they managed to... Wait, you, you, you said a sentence that is they tried to capture as many as they can. And then you, they caught three. Yeah, they did because they were all gone. That's in such a bad state. That's that really is <clears throat> disastrous. Yeah, I mean, if you you know catching skinks should be easy. They're everywhere except for these weren't because they're now extinct. But yeah, the worst thing was as well they were all females, so they all just died in captivity. Um, oh great! Yeah, uh, then because they were hoping to catch more, I think, but they managed to catch forty-three listers geckos and sixty-four blue-tailed skinks, and they were put into purpose-built purpose-built facilities. They um, So they put these at two different breeding sites, one on Christmas Island itself and one in Taronga Zoo in Sydney. And the idea of that was that if there's a big fire or some kind of skink-based ec- epidemic, uh, they don't all die. There's like two populations separately. Uh, Taronga Zoo is quite a way away. Um, so that's probably a pretty good failsafe. Um, they use different methods to reduce inbreeding and maintain genetic diversity in the populations. So Taronga uses something called mean kinship, which uh, works out how related an individual is to the entirety of the population. And then based on how unrelated the individuals are to each other, the one that shares the least relatedness with all the others is like the hero of the species and it's charged with saving the whole species. And then, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then on Christmas Island, they use a different technique where they use maximum avoidance of inbreeding which is basically just working out how related they all are and pairing the least related ones together so they're kind of using two slightly different uh, methods whether or not that's just interesting i'm not sure whether that's just their way or whether that was like an intentional thing to like you know spread themselves a little bit wider which yeah either way it's a good shout um but yeah so the trouble is with this it's ex situ conservation was expensive because you've got to house these animals, you've got to feed the animals, you've got to pay people to look after the animals. Uh, at the moment, it costs two hundred thousand Australian dollars in annual expenses uh, and two thousand five hundred Australian dollars of funding in infrastructure since two thousand eleven. So uh, that's like that doesn't that doesn't seem like very much. Well, it's three hundred twenty thousand dollars in a, in American. I mean, that's three hundred twenty thousand. Yeah, but you're keeping you're keeping a species in existence. Yeah, but mate, there's loads of skinks. <laughs> yeah, but Not my real feelings. But those skinks, though. Yeah, valid. I do agree with you. I do entirely agree with you. It, but what the point of it is, without obviously the Aust- you could, Australian government, all you have to do, money you, into you, this. you just you just swap one football player's salary, and you've got a skink species that still exists. Yeah. Easy trade. <clears throat> Easy trade. Yeah, that is true. In the grand scheme of things, it's actually not a lot, is it? But in terms of no. like, 
getting grants and funding conservation it's quite a lot because um, what's that 23 million years in the making that's skink species and you can actually have an annual budget of two hundred thousand australian dollars to keep it going for an extra year yeah and hopefully it won't be permanent eventually though the aim is to do a reintroduction um it is working though uh so there are 900 blue-tailed skinks from the 94 they originally put into captivity and there's now 500 listers geckos from the 43 they put into captivity so they've been pretty damn successful especially with those blue-tailed skinks um the trouble is the island is still you know a complete and utter death zone if you were to re-release things the wolf snake's still there and the other threats presumably um habitat changes things like that haven't changed so until you can create a nice safe haven and i think they're experimenting with exclusion zones and things like that trying to get some animals back on the uh, back on the island yeah but you know yeah. it's it is to all intents and purposes a very successful uh, conservation project it just needs that last bit to get them back in the wild and it will be an awesome success because if it weren't for this in- intervention, both those species would 100% be extinct. They'd be completely gone. And if you want to see, if you want to Google, I would recommend anyone who's listening, Google uh, the blue-tailed skink, Cryptoblepharis egeriae. It is awesome, and it's great that that has managed to stay on the earth thanks to the efforts of some some good folk. Ah, the blue-tongue, blue, blue-tailed blue skink. Yeah, blue-tailed skink, not the blue-tongue skink. They're blowing everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> they're pretty stunning. Yeah, they're wicked. And that is a proper blue. Yeah. That's not, that's not, oh, it's a little bit blue in the interstitial skin. That is blue. That's blue as blue comes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the update on the Christmas Island conservation, which I thought would be cool for the Christmas special. Yes. Nowhere near Christmas. And we're talking about the big Christmas Island near Indonesia, not the one near Tasmania anymore. We were talking about Truly. the Tasmania one, the first paper. Now we're on the other Christmas island, which we knew was the case before we started the podcast. <laughs> it was a Christmas miracle, I tell you. <laughs> it was. So. Species of bi-week. Yeah, so we mentioned... Well, I'll tell you the paper. The paper is Wassel, Hamidi, Kanaiwan, and Smith, 2017, a new species of wolf snake of the genus Lycodon from the Aceh province of northern Sumatra, Indonesia. It might be Aceh province of northern Sumatra, Indonesia. Um, so the genus Lycodon, we've just been discussing it because the Lycodon... Cap- Capuchinus, which is an invasive species in Christmas Island and elsewhere. Uh, yep. But this one's not an invasive species. It's a brand new species. So um, Not yet. <laughs> not yet, no. They all have it in their hearts. If they're, just, if they're given the right opportunity, anything can be an invasive species. Yeah, but mate, to be honest with you, if someone put you in a box and transported you to a different country with a blindfold on, you didn't know where you'd got to, what would you do when you arrived at your destination? If you didn't know where it was? Um, I would I would eat everything I could. <laughs> exactly. So would I. It's just nature. Yeah. I ain't blaming them. And I would laugh at all the feeble attempts at the animals that I found there to defend themselves from my might. Ha! Look at your suboptimal phenotypes now! <laughs> so yeah, the genus Lycodon is one of the most diverse genre of colubrine snakes. In the past decade, eight species have been described. So they're old news. But this one is new, <laughs> so we should pay it some mind. 
Um, during her theological surveys of Northern Sumatra, this team collected a, a specimen of Lycodon, which they didn't recognise. It looked weird. It didn't look like anything else they'd ever seen. It looked a bit like Lycodon butleri, but uh, they could tell because they were snake experts. This isn't Lycodon butleri. So, um, yeah, they collected some... <laughs> this snake's trying to trick us. <laughs> yeah, so they collected some from uh, that trip to Sumatra, and they also collected some more from Java uh, between 2013 and 2016. Um, the habitat was kind of like a, a rocky creek through a nice wood, and, um, yeah, they did some phylogenetic experimentation to see if it was different, and apparently it is, and they've given it a name. Um... Lycodon Siddiqui, named after yes. Irvan Siddiq, an Indonesian herpetologist. Hmm. Whatever. Yes. Thanks, Irvan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was nice was one of that. Just going back to the the phylogenetic stuff, is them uh, basically calling back and saying that I've, the difference between this species and other closely related ones is as deep, if not deeper, than previously accepted species. So it's a pretty convincing case, uh, even if it does look similar to uh, other species. Is there a photo of this snake? Yes, there is. On page 548, there are two species. Two species, two photos. One of it the right mm. way up, and one of it fallen over. Oh, I was looking at the wrong paper. I was looking at one from Cambodia. How did that get there? <laughs> well, it was always there. <laughs> uh, let's see. Where is it? <laughs> About two thirds of the way down. I'm trying. Oh, oh, it's upside down. Oh, no. They're not going to be like that. Oh, it's wicked, though. It's a really cool snake. It, it looks like it could be mimicking other, well, snakes with legitimately a post-somatic signaling right yeah it looks like, like a your sort of malayan crate or perhaps a coral snake or something along those lines yeah yeah which other lycodon species are known to do yeah i would say that is some pretty frightful coloration and um i would definitely think twice before i grabbed it yeah and it's not even that small we're talking an sbl of 548 millimeters mm. yeah so it's kind of like to describe it it's um it's a slender snake, and it's got um, alternating black and white bands, the black ones being slightly thicker than the white ones. And the white bands aren't consistent. They're kind of like, you know, there's black within them. It's They're quite, patchy. Yeah, yeah. there's patchy. And some of them even have like a, a loose black stripe in the middle of the white band. So it's a beautiful snake. The head's black with like a very thin white collar, at least on the individual that they photographed. Um, and the white bands extend under the belly as well. So it's like a full encirculation of white on the black. Um, and it's a really like glossy, nice snake. It looks like it would be nice to stroke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, non-venomous. So it wouldn't cause you problems. Yeah. No. If it got annoyed. Yeah, chiller. And they have, did you mention the, the head shape? The classic Lycodon Head shape? No. Mm. How would you describe that? Like a like a sort of blunted triangle. Yeah, and like slightly flat. They've got. Yeah. 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 Not not uh, like proper viper mimic or anything along those lines, no. but distinct and quite cute. Yeah, there's quite a well defined head. It's like a friendly looking character. The eyes are far forward mm. on the head as well, further forward than you'd expect if you were to just like draw a generic snake face. 
but um, not so far forward for it to look super beady and evil. So, mm. yeah, I'd say it's got a good balance of features. <laughs> I like it. And um, a very spiny hemipene, as you might expect. Well, they always are. Yeah, they're, ga- they're ghastly. I saw a video of a um, of a tortoise being pulled off a female. There's a male tortoise mating with a female tortoise, and it pulled it off. And it literally... The, the hemipene was like... It, it was a long, thin pipe, but then it ended in this like giant disc. It was terrifying. It was massive. I couldn't believe it. I don't know what... It, I don't know how it had been going... I don't know how it fit in there. It was mental. Um... Perhaps I should find that video and share it. But yeah, tortoise penises. Tortoises. They're weird. Crazy. Yeah. We're going to try and do some more tortoise episodes, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because they're, wow. they're a mystery. What's in that weird they moving are. box? <laughs> nobody, nobody knows. No. No one's ever... You can't see inside them. They're impenetrable. Yeah. Both physically Hard and, as rocks. and emotionally. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the closing remark of that paper was that there's very little of the forests of Java remaining, uh, less than 1%. And so if we're going to try and discover these species, we need to do it now. So if you're listening to this, stop eating meat and get sustainable palm oil and have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, it would help. <laughs> it would. Those are real things. Yeah, they are. They are. Thought it'd be a good time to like have a little preach Christmas time. Everyone's you know feeling reflective. Ah, uh, the Christmas preach. Yeah, the Christmas preach. Um, <laughs> so that's it. That's the that's the that's the podcast. I think so. I think we can do any other business. Uh, for uh, thank you to Jeremiah Martin, a uh, new patron. Yes, thank you very much, Jeremiah. Massive thank you. Super appreciated. Keeping the podcast running. Very, very kind indeed. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, so, yeah. Had some messages from Scott Iper. Uh, well-known lizard snake and all things Australian expert. Um, and possibly beyond. I don't know. He rarely flexes about anything other than Australian stuff. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he had some interesting comments about the skinks, which we talked about um, in the episode on sociality and skinks. Tree skinks are found in eastern Australia, not western, from the Eyre... Uh, oh, we had uh, before, is it the Eye Peninsula? Can you remember how to pronounce that? Ear Peninsula, was it? Ear Peninsula? God damn it. Anyway. I don't know, just <clears throat> mumble it, yeah. and, and then no one can say you're wrong. Tree skinks are found in eastern Australia. Not, I think one of us must have said they're in western, probably me. Um, from the Ear Peninsula. Air Peninsula, it's pronounced Air Peninsula, because that was a correction like a year ago. <laughs> Air Peninsula. <laughs> Through northern Victoria to north Queensland, south of Atherton, predominantly west of the Great Dividing Range in the south, reaching the coast in Brisbane. So that's the correct um, distribution of tree skinks, if you're interested. Uh, Don't listen to what I said previously, whatever it might have been. And um, apparently they are, although they're called tree skinks, they're not necessarily always arboreal. They can also uh, live among rocks, which Scott Scott termed saxicoline, which is a fantastic word. And I don't think we've had on the podcast before. Um, not yet yeah um so yeah apparently if you were to grab one um i'm just going to try and find out what's the scientific name of this species that i'm talking about tree skink oh that's agonia striolata hmm 
Hang on. I'm looking at my notes. And apparently, uh, also, the um, saxicoline tree skinks, that is um, Agonia striolata, are smooth underneath with rough dorsal scales. Presumably they're used during defence. Apparently Scott says they inflate their body in the crevice, and with their rough scales it wedges them in place, which we know is called phragmosis. Although If I'd remembered that, I would have. Phragmosis is where they use their body to block the hole, so I don't know whether that counts, but I'm going to say it's phragmosis just because I wanted to say the word. So There, there are rumours of phragmosis. Rumours of phragmosis abound. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I said I'd uh, big up Mikey Melrose. Saw my mate over Christmas. He's listened to every episode of the podcast. So legend. <laughs> <laughs> Hope Columbia's treating you well, old boy. <laughs> um, I think that's about it. Yeah, I got some shameless self-promotion. If you want to read about King Cobras, new King Cobra paper out about them getting hit with sticks. Sweet. And run over and uh, caught in fish traps and other pleasant things that occur to King Cobras, which is open access and readable. I'm sure we'll do a King Cobra episode at some point. Do you know, I haven't read we'll that. I need, to, I need to read that myself. We should do a King oh, Cobra that's... episode. Yeah. Have you got? We've got enough now because you've had two come out. We could do a Spatial Eco one and then the Mortality paper following it up. Yeah. yeah. And I can talk about the time I found a King Cobra in a fish trap. <laughs> you could. Yeah. That King Cobra is talked about in that paper yeah all right sweet yeah well let's do it sweet 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 cool well um yeah that's episode 42 the christmas special it's (laughs) (laughs) in the fullness of time Uh, it won't seem late (laughs) not really but um yeah if you want to get in touch with us please do uh we often make mistakes as evidenced by scott iper's comments this time uh, and the fact that a Christmas episode has come out on the middle of January, probably. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com, uh, facebook.com slash herphighlights, or we're on Twitter at herphighlights. Um, we also have a Patreon. Uh, if you'd be kind enough to support us, you can Google and search that. That'd be ace. Thank you again to Jeremiah Martin for being our newest uh, patron. Yes, thank you. And um, yeah, have a good one. Have a great Christmas and a happy new year. Thanks for listening.